Hi, you're tuned in to 90.7 FM, KALX Berkeley. I'm Andrew Saintsing, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak to UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I'm joined by Jameson Carnes of the Department of History. Welcome to the show, Jameson. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. It's great to have you here. We're having a little bit of technical difficulties, but we're finally on air. We'll make it work. All right, so Jameson, you study fires and fire management, correct? Absolutely. So uh, why don't you tell us a little bit more about the research you actually do? You're in the Department of History, so you're studying historically how people have approached fires and fire management? Yeah, so I try to always keep a dual lens when I'm doing my research and writing. That is, one, the history of the people, society, and also the history that the landscape, various ecosystems and whatnot are telling me. And I try to combine the two. And I came to this subject uh, largely through my background in prior career before academia. What was your background in prior career? So I was actually a firefighter primarily in Southern California for quite some time. How long? <laughs> What's quite some time? Um, so a little under 10 years. I started at a fairly young age. Um, I come from one of those families where it seems everybody is involved in the fire service one way or another. And so I think before I was born, it was kind of written in the stars that I would be in the fire service and be a firefighter for some time. So how long, how young did you get involved in firefighting? I started fairly young. I started at the age of 15. And uh, how does a 15-year-old get involved <laughs> in firefighting? <laughs> well, there's various volunteer programs that you can enroll with and start in as a very, at a very young age, um, kind, of, kind of a bit similar to what you see with ROTC programs, th- things like that. Uh, and you operate in very much a volunteer capacity, and, and that's very much the norm. Even to this day, most fire departments are volunteer-based. But, uh, I mean, at 15, they're not going to send you to actually fight a raging fire, right? I mean, what what kind of things do, do people younger than 18 do to fight fires? Well, you can enroll in various academies where you kind of get your credentials, things like that. And then slowly you can start taking volunteer shifts. Generally, they're about 24 hours. In some cases, they're 48 hours. And you, you kind of approach it sort of like a apprenticeship, if you will, where you're kind of learning the ropes. And, you know, once you turn 18, that's generally when many fire departments will allow a quote-unquote professional firefighter to start and join the ranks. Okay. Uh, so you were in high school and you were volunteering, and then did you go straight to college or did you start as a professional firefighter uh, once you graduated high school? That's a great question. I started working in wildland firefighting. That's the term we use to apply to those folks that go out and fight forest fires, brush fires, things like that. I started in that field. I then went and did uh, some medical training where I went out and got my paramedic license, and then I I became a quote-unquote professional firefighter. Nice. Um, And then I wound up here at UC Berkeley, getting my undergraduate in history. And I just kind of stuck around and 
here I am getting my graduate degree. Same place. Okay. So th there was a gap between high school and college or? The, you... the, there was not. Okay. So you, during the summer, I guess, or you got some training and then I guess th all throughout college you were working in firefighting capacity or? My first few years as undergraduate, I, I did volunteer a bit. Um, however, once I hit graduate school, all <laughs> that came to a, a a quick and abrupt stop. I see. Okay. So going back to how you study this, you said you look not only at historical documents, but also the history of landscapes. Mm -hmm. So does that mean you're kind of like studying geology in some ways? You're mm -hmm. studying like core samples of things like that? Yeah, that that's a great question. You know, the one of the whole reasons I, I went down this path was actually kind of out of frustration. I, I found the fire service, my vocation, to actually be kind of ahistorical. I found that firefighters weren't that great at conveying what had happened in the past. They use one term, and really only one term only, to convey the past and memory, and that is fire season. You'll hear lots of firefighters talking about like, oh, hey, you remember that fire season in 2017? Well, you know, it wasn't as big as the one in, you know, 2010. Right. And that, that's how they kind of talk about the past. And when you want to dig a little bit deeper, it's really tough to do. I remember asking questions like, well, you know, why are we using Blackhawk helicopters? Why are we positioning fire engines in this way? And often the response I got was, well, you know, this is the way it's always been done. And I wasn't an academic at the time, but I knew a bit about history. I right. knew you didn't have to go back that far to know that, you know, say the Spaniards weren't driving around fire engines around California. So this really wasn't the way things had always been done. Right. And so out of that frustration, when I came here to UC Berkeley, I found this to be a, a great, great campus to investigate this kind of unusual historical subject. Um, not only do we have a great history department, but we also have a great forestry department as well as fire ecology lab. So uh, to get back to your question, one of the things I like to do is not only understand the agencies and the people involved in fire management, but I also like to analyze forestry surveys, land surveys, and even, as you're mentioning, more uh, contemporary surveys, you know, where people uh, study tree course, things like that, to understand what existed in the past through kind of, if you will, natural historical analysis. Oh, cool. So you're looking at documents. Um, you're not... Uh doing the core sampling yourself, right? Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so you work closely with scientists in um, your historical work, or you just uh, collect their documents that they produce? Or Absolutely. I, I often find myself as kind of a, a diplomat in between these two communities because amongst foresters and fire ecologists, they want a record of kind of what existed on the land, what the landscape looked like. And often to get a depiction of that, you need to reach out to historical archives. And that tends to be a place where scientists 
uh, can function, but you know, it's not where they have the most comfort. Right. And so I find myself kind of acting as an intermediary in, in between those, uh, those two arenas. But and also to be fair, it's it's difficult to decipher a lot of California's various fire chapters, if you will. You know that they're so so wide ranging. Myself, I tend to think of it in terms of three different chapters, and these chapters are largely predicated on the governing people at that time. So the first, I usually consider that belonging to the indigenous people, the First Nations, um, the various tribes that were here first. Right. And they used fire in many, many different ways. And I, I do believe they were practicing a science in their own right. They used brain techniques for a variety of agrarian methods. It was common for many tribes to burn large swaths of land and then distribute the seeds of said wanted crop in that area uh, and grow it from those ashes of the burnt area. Other tribes used fire as kind of a supplemental hunting technique. You know, if you had like a bold valley or something like that, you could light it aflame and it would flush out a lot of the game and you could have various hunters around the perimeter that could then take out the game fairly easy. And that chapter pretty much went until the 16th century. And, of course, that's when we have the arrival of the Spaniards here in California, which, of course, was followed by the Mexicans. And when you look at the Spanish, they're really developing their own kind of industry. It was called the hide and tallow industry, where they managed lots and lots of cattle. Uh, and they really kind of came to a conundrum. Uh, when you read a lot of their memoirs and diaries, it's really, really interesting how they describe California. It it doesn't really resemble our current surroundings. Uh, many of them, when they were on horseback, they would frequently complain that the skies around California were raining ash because there were fires occurring all over the place. Most of them being created by the native peoples, like I mentioned. They, they were always frustrated that they could taste ash on their tongue because, you know, fire and ash and soot was always in the air. Oh, so the the fire was always in the air, but that was a man-made uh, situation. Absolutely, absolutely. But, I mean, these landscapes are generally thought to have evolved to adapt to fire, right? Uh, Absolutely. You know, here in California, we have a really unique situation. We have many, many ecosystems, but within that, we also have some of the most flammable. Right. And because of that, we have a number of plants that not only can cope with fire, but are actually dependent on fire. And They've grown and they've evolved to have this dependency. It's a way that they can reproduce for some of them. It's a way that they can cleanse themselves of disease and pests. It's a way they can help eliminate competition. And, you know, that has been in place for a long, long time. Oh, and go ahead. Oh, uh, so fire is something that naturally would 
thought to be occurring in this habitat before people even came here. Absolutely. When, when it comes to California, fire is as natural as rain. Right. But so I guess would Native Americans uh, using fire as part of their daily life kind of suppress natural fire? It's almost like today now that we have our ideas of um, controlled burns. Is mm-hmm. that kind of mm-hmm. like a contribution Native Americans are having to the landscape? That's a great question. You know, we don't have many records of Native people actively suppressing fire. We have many records of them igniting fire, starting fire. However, suppression, as we'd find out in the later areas, it's extremely labor-intensive. And actually, in their case, it could have been very counterintuitive to what they were trying to do with the landscape and food production. Right. So uh, what was a typical, I I mean, do you have, uh, are there historical records of what kind of Native Americans were doing? Would they just start a fire and then say, all right, everybody clear out. We got a fire going. Yeah. You know, it's really tough because, you know, we, we don't have many written records. The Native people, they relied completely on oral traditions and um, oral sciences, if you will. So a lot of the records we have either come from anthropologists, they come from the records of the Spanish. So it is a bit tough to decipher, but generally what would take place is it would be a seasonal action in a designated area where uh, they would go ahead and ignite a fire and various tribes people, generally women, would go and distribute seeds of the crop that they wanted to grow, and they would allow them to take root in the soil that is now fertilized by tons and tons of ash, which is a wonderful thing for many species. And later on, as the rains would come and these plants would develop, they would come back and harvest them. So the Spanish got here and they said, we don't like this at all. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Going back to that point, you know, they they developed what's called the hide and tallow industry. Basically, they're managing tons and tons of cows. And California at that time, it really looked like a paradise for it. You know, we had tons of meadows, uh, lots of grassy fields. And for them, it, it, it was ideal for that industry. But as you can imagine, fire and cows, they don't mix too well. Right. I, I, I mean, they, they, they can, I think, if you cook them well enough. Right. But in terms of the hide and tallow industry, uh, not too well. And so it's actually from our Spanish governors here in California that we have the first laws against burning. And these laws that were on the books and were considered extremely justifiable at the time uh, allow Spanish citizens to punish native peoples as they see, as they saw fit if and when they saw them using fire uh in any method whatsoever wait like how punitive and how, how I, i'm just wondering you know if a native american just had a campfire was that a thing that spanish spaniards could um punished for? Yeah, it's it's, it's tough to find out how this law um, worked on the ground, but there doesn't seem to be too much mercy (laughs) in these laws. I I mean, um, you know, much of uh, Spanish governance in relation to the native 
people isn't really right known for its uh its mercy if you will right um yeah and you see this system expanded a bit when the government is then passed on to the mexican government and later when california becomes a federal area and then a state uh in the 1850s then it's then you see a, another drastic shift and that's what i consider the third chapter which we're probably in right now and as you could imagine after california receives statehood with it comes western institutions and amongst these western institutions is a science called forestry something that really developed in germany and france and then was imported to the east and slowly made its way to california and forestry at that time to boil it down in in relation to fire it's best to think of the forest like a crop right you would like to maximize the amount of trees on your land so that you could maximize profit and also within that you want to eliminate any externalities any threats to your crop and obviously fire is a threat to your crop of trees so then we see the first inklings of fire management and i i think as you know or anybody that has watched a wildfire on the news um, fighting wildfires forest fires is extremely labor intensive so for many years after the state founded uh CDF, or what was then called the California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection, they allowed fire wardens to actually conscript people if and when a fire took place. So if you and I happened to be out by a forest and a fire took off and we happened to run to a warden, he could actually conscript us then and there to fight the fire, or we could face jail time if, if we said no. And so... It was and through... I guess the nobody was liable if you got hurt. Yeah, hurt. no, it was pretty much on you. Yeah, right. it, it, it was on you. There's actually some great uh, narratives out there of fire wardens teaming up with police buggies. And what they would do is they would sweep these areas and they would ask you, you know, would you like to say, go fight this fire out here in Sacramento? And you would say yes, you would go out with the fire warden. If you said no, you would take a ride in the police buggy, in, in the paddy wagon, and uh, go down to the jail. It sounds, uh, sounds illegal yeah, for someone. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> and, and that pretty much existed until we got to World War II. So when we get to World War II, that actually ends up being a real big game changer for fire management and there's a couple major shifts that happen. The first is there's a drastic shift in the men and equipment. The first being you have many, many GIs that are returning. They're highly trained. They have the ability to bring paramilitary tactics to fire suppression. And the second component being the equipment itself. You have many decommissioned jeeps, planes, helicopters, radios, all those things get immediately applied to fire management, and they drastically change the vocation. I mean, you could imagine responding to a fire 
on horseback or on foot versus, you know, a Jeep with aerial assistance using radio communication. So it drastically changes, one, how aggressive you can be in terms of fighting fire, and two, how quickly it can be done. But also on the inverse of that, you have a group of radical foresters that are questioning some of these basic notions of forestry. Uh, the first being that fire is bad. Right. And one of them actually came from this university. He's a very famous forester. His name was Harold Biswell. And Biswell and others went out and they began to listen to a variety of communities around California, primarily sheep herders, cattlemen, those that were often frequently hit by wildfires and affected by wildfires, but also were around to see the aftermath. And there was a consensus coming up that, you know, these fires may not be all that bad. You know, the landscape after a fire, it grows back fairly quickly. It tends to be more diverse. And these foresters really started investigating these claims. And they started to understand fire in a variety of ecosystems. And that's why we now refer to them as fire ecologists. Yeah, I feel like now, well, you know, I'm studying biology. Mm. And so I guess as uh, I'm used to thinking of fire as being important to um, to ecosystems. And uh, I guess, so how long ago was it that people were kind of coming to these conclusions that maybe fire isn't an enemy, but that should be part of life? Well, it's it's very difficult because I, I'm sure as you could appreciate as a scientist, there's the understanding in the scientific community and then there's the understanding in the public. And often right. they can be right. uh, two very different things. So when we get to the 1960s, 70s, particularly 80s, there tends to be a wider understanding amongst foresters, forest ecologists, that fire in certain ecosystems is necessary and that helps with the recognition of fire dependent species things of that nature and that's also when you see more and more experimentation with what we now call prescribed burning right you know getting out there and intentionally setting fires with um with the hope that there will be beneficial effects right um however you know, this understanding isn't as well known in the general at large. You know, California here, we're in a very, very unique place because it seems every fire season we get a ton of media coverage in our fires, wherever they happen to be in the state, around the world. If California is burning, you'll know about it. And we've been great at conveying this message that we need to go out there and aggressively fight these fires. Uh, some of them rightly so, some of them maybe not. You know what? One of the difficulties about this state is we really don't have any limitation on where we can set up homes, where we can set up communities. Um, 
<clears throat> though you'd find these limitations in other countries, we really don't have them here. Well, there's, you mean there's no, like, legal limitations to? Well, in, in terms of, of zoning where where you can build homes and all that. So, for instance, let's let's take the ever popular community of Malibu. You know, Malibu, it's in Southern California, extremely popular and extremely affluent community. But when you look at the ecosystem it's built in, it's built in a coastal chaparral ecosystem. Right. And that happens to be one of the most flammable, if not the most flammable ecosystems on the world. You know, if things were to occur naturally, quote unquote, if you will, there would be a fire generally in the ballpark of once every five to 15 years in, in Malibu. However, within that same community, we've also developed huge mansions, large homes. Right. Like I said, very affluent communities, really without much regard to what would occur um, along those hillsides to keep that ecosystem healthy. Right. So you're saying that uh, it was, I mean, I guess in my mind, when you brought that point up, I was mm -hmm. thinking about how there's all of this protected land, right? Mm -hmm. That we mm -hmm. couldn't build on. Mm -hmm. um, but it's that the places we've already started building weren't planned out well. Hey, absolutely. And so it, it can be a bit tough if you build structures within deep forest stands within chaparral ecosystems to then expect fire agencies, the state, to come in and protect these structures right. in, in these uh, highly, highly flammable surroundings. And that's something that the state of California has continually grappled with and will continually grapple with. So what do you think a place like Malibu, I mean... I, you know, it's such an iconic place kind mm -hmm, of, right? Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. there's no way you're going to get people to just abandon it. Right? Yeah, no, no. And I, I would never recommend uh, doing that. But, you know, like I mentioned earlier, we do have proactive and prescriptive means either through thinning, either through prescribed burning to go out there and uh, minimize this threat to these communities, as well as have a beneficial ecological impact as well. Um, however, these moves tend to be a bit difficult. One, gaining support for them. You know, nobody really likes to look in their backyard and see kind of a charred moonscape. Right. It, it will never, ever be popular. And two, developing the license for these prescribed burnings thing can sometimes be difficult as uh, certain agencies have found that they run into a number of uh, bureaucratic hurdles in in doing so. Right, I see. Going a little bit back, uh, when you talked about starting the new chapter from mm -hmm. Spanish to, mm -hmm. uh, I guess, American, yeah. U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, jurisdiction, uh, and you were talking about forestry kind of being established in Germany and France. Mm -hmm. um, well, I've never been to Europe, but I have heard right that forests there are kind of like these really manicured places especially mm -hmm. in comparison to the u.s mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. and so i guess 
would it even be possible to apply the same logic to European forests as to North American forests? Well, I, I, I think we tried. You know, if if we think of the science kind of flowing from, uh, Europe over here to the West, you know, one of the things that now obviously stands out to us is the ecosystems are vastly different. Right. And you know what stands out and becomes the most apparent: those forests over there in Europe, they're just wetter. It's harder to start a fire. They don't occur as frequently. Right. But one of the things that's really interesting is with global warming across the globe, we see fires sprouting up with a greater occurrence and frequency in areas where historically they wouldn't occur at that rate. And so in many ways, we're seeing the flow of techniques coming from the states back to other regions of the world. Right. Where now they're kind of looking at our specialty in in firefighting well we're about out of time uh are there any thoughts you'd like to leave the audience with yeah you know last thing i would say um you know i i'm a historian so i'm definitely not going to say what will or will not happen in the future but i do think california and the united states as a whole is at a really interesting point you know as i mentioned Many say that we're in the age of mechanized fire suppression, and we do have the option of continuing that. You know, some agencies right now are currently playing with using predator drones to assist them in fire management. Um, So many think that we will continue along that path. But the other option there is also to look back at some of the prior chapters and really consider some of the prescriptive and proactive forms of management that exist out there. Um, And it's something that we will have to confront sooner or later. You know, climate change is making this a really interesting and demanding topic. So this is a situation that's going to force us to commit to one of these paths. You think we might expect to see uh, in the future... California looking more like uh, the way the Spanish saw it uh, when they first got here, more consistently seeing the effects of fire in our day-to-day lives, uh, ash in the sky, maybe scorched landscapes? Well, I I think it it would be nice to see more forms of localized, proactive fire management, people getting out there and interacting with these ecosystems and developing situations where they can not only benefit the environment, but keep their communities safe as well. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Jameson. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. You know, I'd like to thank the Scott Stevens Fire Lab here at UC Berkeley. And if anybody's interested in monitoring fire here in California or anywhere around the world, they could check out the Global Fire Monitoring Center at gfmc.online. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Tune in two weeks for the next episode of The Graduates.